0: SETI Podcast. My name is Frederick Fishman. I am an author, blogger, and podcaster. I wrote the SETI Trilogy three books about the discovery of the first radio signal received here on Earth from an extraterrestrial civilization. That first indication and discovery of an intelligent alien species cascades into a chain of events that forever changes how we humans view life In the universe, the intelligent extraterrestrial radio signals set off a struggle for control of the signal's discovery and the information it contains. That ultimately leads to a struggle for human existence here on Earth. Books one, two, and three have been written. I will narrate those books, presenting two chapters per week in this podcast off planet Earth. The story will take all of you to locations here on Earth and beyond that you've never seen or heard about. It will be a wild ride. If you just can't wait to hear the story in full from the already completed SETI trilogy, those books are available in both Kindle and print format on Amazon.com. SETI was first print published in the U.S. and Canada by publisher Penguin USA and in the UK and Australia by Headline Press in London. I am the author of a 100 fiction and non-fiction books available on Amazon. For links to all of those books, you can go to my author website at www.frederickfishman.com. Last name spelled F-I-C-H-M-A-N, www.frederickfishman.com. Let's begin with Chapter 1 from SETI. The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence A Science Fiction Novel Written by Frederick Fishman Narrated by Frederick Fishman Prologue The Search Begins All had not agreed on the wisdom of the program, but the program had been initiated. Eighteen common-sized asteroids had been placed in position so that the entire quadrant would be covered. The asteroids were precisely designed and manufactured. Linking multiplex duplicators were implanted and focused toward the main collector. Analysis and computation were performed by tuned wide-spectrum analyzers. At first, the received signals were random and disjointed. The content made no sense. Finally, image information had been completed, but the content again made no sense. Library images had been compiled and studied. Still, no sense could be made of the content. Trying to think like the aliens who had sent them did make it easier to decipher their meaning. The decision was made to concentrate on audio signals containing voice component only to break down the psychology of what had been sent. Not as much data needed to be analyzed. More valuable were the message and the sounds made by the alien voices. Then there was an amazing happenstance. While data was being cleansed, a lower frequency emission was detected, recorded, and then analyzed automatically and systematically. The signal was clear and precise due to the voice qualities of the alien sending it. Subsequently, the specific radio source was considered an element of a general radio frequency planetary beacon drifting in the mass radio confusion of naturally occurring background noise. The radio source was from a planetesimal 3.617 parsecs away, nearby a quite ordinary star. The position was the third planetesimal from that star. Its distance from the star was 92 million miles. Sometime later, correlation with a future event Directed attention to this transmission the connection would be explored and considered perhaps the time was now right to take advantage of the signal and the tangent planetesimal recovery chapter 1 he could barely see over the desktop but three thick Los Angeles phone books proved helpful his small hands were just strong enough to twist the stubborn frequency knob. But six-year-old Sam Alexander could copy Morse code at 22 words per minute in his head, and no one his age in the United States held an extra-class FCC amateur radio license. He was a radio communications prodigy. It was very early in the morning. And Sam was sitting at an old battered desk, cluttered with amateur radio receivers and transmitters and associated equipment. Pilot lights and power indication bulbs of various colors glowed and winked as Sam's tiny voice was amplified and transmitted from a tall vertical antenna just outside his window in the backyard backyard of his modest Pasadena, California home. He was still dressed in his pajamas, his feet covered by a pair of old floppy socks. The morning sun was blasting through an aluminum sliding glass window. Just to the right of his desk, it flooded the room with bright light that penetrated every square millimeter of that room. But it could have been the dark of night, Sam, was only concentrating on the awkwardly accented English voice being transmitted from Yugoslavia half a world away. Most boys his age had posters of sports stars or movie favorites plastered over their walls. Sam's walls were covered with QSL contact cards from around the world. Artwork and photographs blended into a collage of colored images from the most remote parts of the earth. The entire wall behind his bed was covered with a wallpaper world map. Sam had stuck small red pins in every country he had contacted either by voice or Morse code. He had 128 pins on that map so far. He was waiting for his father to buy another box of pins so he could stick in 18 more. Most boys his age knew where the nearest toy store or movie house was located. Sam knew the locations of the Seychelles, Sumatra, Western Samoa, and Belize. Although English was the preferred language on the voice frequencies, passing pleasantries in German or Spanish or French was not difficult for Sam. Sam said his 73s, his goodbyes, to Stefan in Zadar, situated on the Adriatic coastline. His voice carried through the Shure 444 microphone into his SWAN transceiver. The electrical signal was modulated and amplified further as it sped through the Heathkit linear amplifier. It moved out of the house, through the coaxial cable, to the 18-foot-long ground-mounted vertical antenna. At the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it shot off the antenna, angled toward the ionosphere. The signal, for the most part, reflected back to Earth. The process was repeated till some of the electrons passed the amateur antenna of YU2RST in Serbia. But not all the signal was reflected back to Earth. A small number of electrons were headed on a journey into deep space. Sam flipped the power switch off and turned to look at the map of the world. Yugoslavia seemed to stand out in particular detail. He knew it was a difficult country to contact. Not many ham radio operators were allowed on the air there. He swung around and grabbed a pencil he began to scribble into his radio log the frequency, time, as described in Greenwich Mean Time. Stefan's call sign and Stefan's city were also indicated on the log now. Then he put the pencil down, and a broad smile crept across his sweet face. His dark hair almost covered his clear brown-green eyes. He was very excited, he wanted to tell his father. Sam swung his feet to the edge of the chair and hopped off. He padded to the narrow doorway, then stopped as he sniffed the smell of bacon suddenly permeating the house. He could hear his mother banging pots and talking back to the voice of the ingenuous talk show host on her small kitchen radio. On his route to the kitchen, Sam stepped into his father's combination office and ham shack. Now as many QSL cards or maps covered the walls, but there wasn't as much, if not more, amateur radio gear of every type and description. The room was the same size as Sam's, but the lighting was more indirect. One wall was filled to capacity with books, mostly scientific, Subjects ranged from astronomy to physics, but were mostly radio wave propagation and microwave radio astronomy. Congratulatory plaques from various scientific organizations were situated next to the achievement letters and awards from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. One picture showed Sam's father, Peter, sitting in the small cockpit of an old Cessna 152-seat aircraft. Another picture was of Peter, another man standing next to a large steel frame, dirty gray radio telescope. Peter Alexander hunched down in an overstuffed chair. He was engrossed in his morning paper. He didn't hear Sam until the little boy had bounced into his lap. Peter was startled but pleased to see Sam. Sam greeted his father with a big yawn and curled up in his father's lap into a small ball of love and warmth. Peter took off his glasses, gave Sam a hug, and kissed him on the forehead. Good morning, Sammy, Peter said softly. Sam seemed sleepy again, although he had been up for an hour working with his ham radio gear. He replied to his father with a small grunt, then snuggled farther down into Peter's lap. Peter folded his paper and tossed it onto a nearby equipment desk. He looked down at Sam. Hey. Sam closed his eyes and looked very nearly asleep. Peter moved a bit to look Sam in the face. Hey, sleepyhead, I heard you on the air this morning. Any interesting countries you contacted? I got Canada and Mexico. What do you think of that? That's nice, Sam yawned. I worked, uh, let's see. Peter waited for the answer. Then he shook Sam very gently. Hey, come on. Who did you work this morning? Please tell me. I'm really interested. Tell me. Okay, Sam said as he opened his eyes. Let's see. I talked to Antarctica last night. I talked with stations in Germany and Yugoslavia this morning. The foreign DX was really coming in good, Dad. He added with sweet innocence. You did it to me again. Sorry, Dad. I just got lucky. Peter hugged Sam again. Hey, that's okay. Someone in the family's got to rack up those countries. Yeah, I guess, but at least they let you try for those alien planets at work. Can I help you with that sometimes? Someday, someday. Sam snuggled again into the warmth of his father's arms. Sam adored his father and loved his mother dearly. They were special, not like other parents'. His were the best parents in the world. He was proud of his father's radio astronomy work at JPL, although he didn't understand it. He loved his mother's cooking and admired her ability to throw a baseball, although he did wish she threw a ball a little harder and straighter. I tell you what you can help me with, Peter said. What? Tell me. Remember what I promised last month? Sam sat up quickly, his eyes wide open. This morning? Are we going this morning? Peter playfully grabbed his son's stomach. While you were in the room talking to the world, I was in the garage packing and getting ready. Sam jumped up in excitement and landed on his feet. Oh boy, the desert! The incline of the blazing hot sand dune was approximately 26 degrees. The incline of the blazing hot sand dune was approximately... 26 degrees, but the large black desert beetle had no problem scampering to the top. The low-angled afternoon sun glistened on its shiny carapace. The gentle tapping of its feet mixed with the soft whine of the wind. The sky was a deep azure. The sand was blanched bone white by the relentless sun. The insect crested the dune and then stopped, frozen in position. He flinched as the silence was shattered by the deafening roar of an unmuffled VW engine. Sailing over its tapered head, roaring over its jet-black body, was a 150-horsepower sand-rail dune buggy. The cherry red vehicle threw its two occupants to one side, then the other, as it raced down the dune. The beetle disappeared under the sand, looking for shelter from the noise and vibration. The dune buggy continued up, over, and around the undulating dunes that stretched out for miles ahead. In every direction, all that could be seen were dunes. Occasionally, a motorcycle or all-terrain vehicle would jump over the horizon and then plunge into the sand valleys. Now and then, a screaming military jet would maneuver overhead, making another run and pass at the target range miles away. But it was the roars and screams of the dune buggies that dominated what was heard on those dunes. To the north, the dark brown chocolate mountains seemed to endlessly stretch across the Mojave Desert. To the west, more desert and the farming town of Brawley. To the southwest, the Mexican border and the border town of Calexico. To the southeast, the Arizona border, and Yuma. The sand hills were the two favorite spots in the California deserts where enthusiasts pushed themselves and their machines against the 37.7-degree-inclined dune limit, the scorching heat, and the unstoppable intrusion of sand. The sand that provided the perfect footing for the 12-inch-wide paddle tires that was also the enemy of carburetors and possibly of a good night's sleep. Sand collected in carburetor eject tubes and human ear canals with equal ease. The red buggy roared away from the still buried beetle, kicking up rooster tails of sand in its wake. It crossed over the lip of one dune, made a dizzying run several times around a tight sand bowl, launched into the air again, and then jolted to the top of a 400 foot incline. It moved farther away, the engine noise becoming fainter as the sun touched the top of the dunes in the west. The temperature and the wind began to drop as night approached. Sam put his hands behind his head as he stretched out on a small blanket, perched on the precipice of a flattened dune. Thirty feet away, Peter struggled to loosen his screw in the carburetor assembly. He adjusted the flashlight to move it closer to his work. The red dune buggy had turned black in the darkness. Peter dropped the screwdriver and looked at the dunes. Far in the distance, he heard the roar of engines and saw the pinpoint dots of hundreds of headlights of other dune buggies trying their luck up Competition Hill. Peter tightened his windbreaker. He looked over at his son. Sam, have you zipped up your jacket? Sam stared up at the dome in the sky filled with stars, galaxies, supernovas, pulsars, quasars, and planets. He replied weakly, Yes, Dad. That's all I need to do is bring you home sick. Your mother would kill us both. Peter turned his attention again to the carburetor. As Sam looked up, he tried to delineate the solar system. He saw the steady glow of Jupiter. That was easy. He could almost see the small bumps on either side of Saturn. The rings? Was that Saturn? He didn't think that any other planets in the sky were up at that moment. There, the Orion Nebula. The gas has a greenish tint, right? The silence of a meteorite encountering the Earth's atmosphere belied its brilliance as it arched overhead. Ooh, did you see that? Sam asked. What, Peter replied. Sam, continuing to watch the night sky, didn't answer. Then he rolled over onto one elbow. The roaring of the distant dune buggies grew louder as several tried to scale the steep competition hill and be the first to make it to the top. Bragging rights would be important around the desert campground fires that night. Away from the hill, Sam could see single buggies bouncing up and over smaller, more manageable hills, moving in absolute silence. Their million-candle-power halogen headlamps were dots of light against the featureless blackness of the desert mounds below Sam's vantage point. Rolling over on his back again, Sam looked up at the sky. He concentrated on the artwork above. Dad, Peter, who had finally taken the carburetor apart, meticulously began to remove sand from the slender blower tubes. Dad? Yes, son, what is it? How many stars are in the sky? Without looking up, Peter replied, more than you could possibly imagine. Sam considered the answer and continued to stare at the sky. Dad? The questions never stopped, Peter thought. He didn't mind, but was amazed at how they were so integral to his son's personality. Yes, son, what is it now? How many of those stars have planets around them? You know, like Earth is around our star, the sun. Peter stopped his tedious work and looked over at Sam. More than even both of us could possibly imagine. Sam was very proud of himself and very pleased with the answer. He smiled. Good, I hope so. Below and beyond, the concentrated dune buggy lights laced through the plain near Competition Hill. Scattered much further away, Tiny lights crawled across the desert floor, almost to the horizon. Sparkling above the horizon were the tiny lights of the distant suns, of stars millions of miles away in space and millions of years ago in time. It was difficult at any certain moment to differentiate where this horizon ended and where the sky began. They blended together with that demarcation. It was difficult to separate the battery-driven lights of the dune buggies and the nuclear force-driven light generated by the stars. It was all one tapestry.